Today brings us to the third talk of seven in the sermon series which we're calling Exodus Espresso. The first half of Exodus is a story of action and upheaval. It's the story of a people on the move under God's mighty hand. And so that was very much Exodus Express, and that's what we called it. We expressed it as Exodus Express, that first half. Get the podcast if you missed it. Uh, There's some good stuff in there. But the second half of Exodus is much more static. It's more about the way that God redefines his people once their escape from Egypt is complete. So what these chapters teach us is less about what we are to do and more about what we are to become. In 2 Corinthians terms, as you might remember from a few weeks ago, we are to be ambassadors of heaven on earth. The very aroma of God in a fallen, needy world. So we're approaching our study of Exodus 21 to 40 in terms of Exodus Espresso, as it were, seven flavors of the people of God. In the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai, we saw firstly that God's chosen people are to be a people of holiness. And we saw that God's idea of holiness is really something quite different from what we've made it uh, in the intervening years. Then in Kirsty's wonderful, memorable talk last week, we saw that secondly, we're to be a people of God's presence. And that's not only a matter of our own enjoyment, provision, protection, and all that good stuff, and it is good stuff. It is equally as a demonstration to the whole world of the close relationship that God has desired with humanity ever since creation. It's a demonstration of his presence which will draw the whole world back to him, as Colossians 1.20 puts it. This is the great ministry of reconciliation which God has entrusted to us and which we spoke about a few weeks ago. Quite a key talk. Uh, I recommend that you get it if you weren't able to be there. Well, the next thing after that that happens in Exodus, after that extraordinary event where the elders of Israel actually eat, they feast in God's presence, is that God gives to Moses detailed instructions on the construction of an incredible portable temple, a tabernacle, as it's called, where he will dwell among them. And before we say another word on that subject, it's vital to point out that according to Hebrews 1, However perfect a representation this tabernacle was of God's dwelling place on earth, a better one was to come in the person of Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. Everything that follows relates to Jesus in one way or another. So we have to keep that in mind. In Matthew 12, 6, he says, he is greater than the temple. And even in John 2, verse 19, he refers to his his body as this temple. Back in Moses' time, the great new revelation of God's dwelling place, i.e. heaven on earth, will be this magnificent portable temple. Dwarfing the tents around it, both in size and in grandeur, this table will be a constant visible reminder of God's presence and covenant blessing. It'll be a place where human beings can go and meet their creator. It'll be a place of sacrifice where they can get right with him and it will be a place of worship. But perhaps above all, since it's to be built exactly according to the pattern that God shows Moses on the mountain, 
It is a place where God's design is fully implemented. A place where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In short, it's a place where heaven comes to earth. And that, I think, is the third flavor of God's people, which I see in these chapters of Exodus. We're to be a people where God makes his home. A people of heaven come to earth. Today, I want to pick out just a couple of things that we can learn from six long chapters that cover the pattern of the tabernacle. This is the kind of passage that we're often tempted to skip over in our our own normal reading. Who cares about all this detail? Well, apparently God does. So probably we better have a look too. I want to suggest that we can sometimes benefit from from a different kind of reading, a more contemplative one, where we sometimes stop on a single verse or even a phrase, which looks inconsequential in its own right, and meditate on what it is that God wants to say to us through it. Now, you'll be delighted to hear, I don't intend to do that with every one of the verses in the six chapters we're going to study today. I'm not even going to read them all. You'll be glad to hear that too. But we are going to play a a, a flying visit, at least, to every single aspect of them. But I do want to begin by uh, by reading a section and also doing a brief conventional study on it of the opening verses from chapter 25, 1 to verse 22. Uh, And I'll do that just as soon as I explain one thing. I am going to use that odd word, tabernacle, in this talk, even though it's not one that's in common English use. It means something like a dwelling place. And it can refer to perfectly ordinary tents that you might buy in blacks or whatever they call millets nowadays. What do they call millets these days? No, they call it blacks, do they? Is it really? It's all become blacks. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, a, a tent that you buy in the tent shop. It, 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 it could mean that. In fact, it, it's sometimes used in its New Testament form to describe this, this physical body, a kind of temporary home that we live in while we are... Uh, walking around before we die, um, and then we go on to our, our, permanent, uh, our permanent home when the, our wilderness wanderings are over. But this tabernacle, also sometimes known as this t- tent of meeting, is a, a meeting place between God and mankind. And to refer to it as uh, a merely a tent would be to, uh, it'd be just incredibly misleading. Not only was its construction involving gold and silver, intricate embroidery, uh, and fine woodwork, infinitely grander than any tent I can, probably you can imagine. It was also vastly bigger. The outer court was 23 metres wide, 46 metres long, and the central part was 4.6 metres high, which is getting on for um, the height of, uh, of three ordinary adults and two fills. <laughs> A cricket pitch would fit crosswise in it for those of you who play cricket and two would fit lengthwise in a city of tents this tabernacle would be visible from every point and i think it deserves a particular title because it was a very particular building it was a fully functional temple worthy of the god who created the universe which could nevertheless be packed up and transported from place to place So with that in mind, let's read from chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, he probably didn't clear his throat actually. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel 
that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make me an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make it on a molding, uh, make on it a molding of gold round it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another, towards the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Well, there's quite a bit of detail even there that we could get our teeth into if we really wanted to get bogged down in it. But I want to concentrate on just two points before we move on to something of a speed reading of the following chapters. And the first of these is the human element in heaven come to earth. Chapter 25, verses 1 to 9. See, God could have created a perfect tabernacle in heaven and just plonked it down among the people. But as we said many times in this reading of Exodus, and it's essential to our understanding as we, as we grow into an Exodus mindset that we get this, God's plan is a man or a woman. St. Teresa in the 14th century distilled this whole biblical idea of the church as God's body, the body of Christ, down to a personal level with a short meditation that begins, Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And ends, yours are the hands with which he blesses people now. God's dwelling place on earth is to be made from the gifts, verse 2, and using the giftings, verse 8, of human beings. Heaven on earth is constructed by men and women from the voluntary contributions people choose to make to the work. So it really does matter whether we contribute or not, because if we don't, God's plan simply will not work, which is a bad thing, right? 
The contribution has to be voluntary, verse 2, because God's kingdom is not made by coercion. It's made by our wills becoming conformed to his. But notice verse 3 that it also has to be a specific contribution. We're to offer God what he wants, not what we want to offer him. It's like if you've had small children in your family, you'll know that they want to help you in a very particular way. I want to uh, dry up that expensive glass vase. Mm, Do you? That's interesting. Well, I quite like you to clean your shoes. We have to offer God what he wants, not we want to offer. So a rich man can't just give money if God is asking for his time among the down and outs. A less well-off woman can't just give the artworks she makes if God is asking her for money. What is the contribution that God is asking of you and me? What is our heart, verse 2, moving us to give before our head butts in and tells us we can't afford it? Then in verse 9 we see God setting what looks awfully like a standard of perfection. It all has to be done exactly according to the pattern he shows to Moses. But I'm not sure that's really perfection, is it? Because try as we may, we can never make a thing as well as God would make it himself. Nor presumably is earthly gold as pure or precious stones from this fallen creation as unflawed as their heavenly counterparts, which we read about in the book of Revelation. So however excellent the tabernacle we build for God, it surely can't be quite as good as the one that he would build for himself. But God tells us all the same to use our own human skills and ordinary earthly raw materials to what we can lay our hands on in building his dwelling place on earth. So perhaps the point is not that the results should be absolutely perfect, but that the process should be absolutely obedient. That, it seems to me, is the human element in becoming a people of heaven come to earth. We don't wait for God to build his own dwelling place. We don't wait for him to give us the perfect raw materials and the perfect talents. We use what he's already given us. So second, the second point I want to bring to your attention is the heart of worship, verses 10 to 22. As the plan unfolds, we see that God starts at the center with the Ark of the Covenant. That is to be the centerpiece, indeed the sole contents of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And it's from that central point, with a couple of exceptions, that the plan extends outwards via the contents of the holy place, the outer, the outer temple and its construction, to the bronze altar of sacrifice that stands outside that, and so to the construction of the outer courtyard, which surrounds everything else. The world we live in is extremely concerned with the outward appearance. But as 1 Samuel 16, 7 tells us, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So we shouldn't be surprised if God begins by changing people's hearts and works outward in their lives, eventually coming to their behavior. We Christians sometimes want people to behave right before we invite them in. But as John Wimber was keen on pointing out, people need to belong before they believe, and they need to believe before they'll behave. 
So what then is at the centre of worship in this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, the dwelling place of the Most High God? Quite a strange object, really. Verses 10 to 15, it's a wooden box, overlaid with gold, carried on long poles of the same construction. Now this speaks to me, first of all, of God's understanding of human frailness. Surely pure gold would be the desirable material. But if the ark and its carrying poles were made of pure gold, it would be almost impossible to carry. I always laugh at movies where bank robbers run away with huge holdalls full of gold bricks. So anyone's actually picked up a gold bar will tell you how impossible that is. In God's design for his earthly home, his care for our weakness is expressed from the very start. Because if this doesn't work for us humans, it doesn't work for him. This is the same heart of love that eventually sent to us Jesus, God with us in human form. John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, i.e. tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or as Hebrews 1 puts it, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In this box, verse 16, Moses is to put the stone tablets engraved by God with the Ten Commandments. So at the very center of worship and the dwelling place of God is his law in its most basic form. We can't have God without his holiness. But above that, verses 17 to 21, closing the box is a mercy seat, or as some versions just translate it, an atonement covering. And whichever we see this ornate gold lid as, with its uh, twin-winged cherubim, whether we see it as a mercy seat or a mere atonement covering, the force of the words atonement and mercy work out at the same thing. Despite the holiness of God as evidenced by his law, he provides for us mercy or atonement, literally at one moment. Hence, the writer of Hebrews insists that we should approach with confidence God's throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need. So it's not from the stone tablets themselves that God speaks with Moses and with us or indeed from the ark that contains them, but verse 22, from above the mercy seat, which is set over them. If we approach God through law alone, then woe betide us. But if we approach his mercy seat, even though we know that it is founded on his law, we can do so with confidence. Now, of course, until Jesus came, as we have read in Hebrews, only the high priest once a year could approach the mercy seat of God. Nevertheless, I hope you can see that even here, at the very roots of the Jewish faith, there's a clear pre-echo of God's reconciling plan in Jesus Christ to place his mercy firmly between us and a perfect law which must otherwise destroy us. And I hope you can see too, in verse 22, his desire for relationship with his people. At the heart of worship is God's perfect holiness, his perfect mercy, his perfect loving desire to communicate with us. From Moses' day to the Christian age, 
there was always a need to demonstrate the necessity of barriers, sacrifices, mediators between holy God and unholy man. And there are plenty of them to be found in these six chapters. But I believe the central purpose of God in his relationship with humanity is clear from what he puts at the heart of worship in the tabernacle. It is to find a way of reconciliation so that we can once more be fully his people and he can once more be fully our God. That through us, all the families on earth can be blessed and drawn to make connections with him. So that is a brief glimpse of the human element of the heart of worship in building heaven on earth, a dwelling place for God. What else, very quickly, can these chapters teach us? This is going right through to the end of chapter 30. And, of course, there's material here for many a sermon, and I'm not going to preach any of them today. You might want to read over these chapters yourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to point out to you what he wants to show you. All we have time for this morning is to point up some of the headlines. And if these particular ones don't grab you as they do me, go get your own. I do hope they will at least demonstrate some of the ways that we can learn from what looks like rather an unpromising chunk of scripture. So here's my personal shortlist. Well, it's not that short, but, but it's far from exhaustive anyway. Of suggestions for meditations from Exodus 25 to 30. Chapter 25, 23 to 30, the table of showbread. One loaf of bread for each of the 12 tribes, placed on a table just outside the Holy of Holies. Every tribe, read Christian denomination, is equally represented before God, provided for by God, welcome to his table, and inheritors of the blessing of Jesus who called himself the bread of life. Second one. 25, 31 to 40. The lampstand. Seven branches beaten from a single block of gold. Seven light sources. Seven expressing completeness and perfection. Shining all night long over the showbread opposite. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't apprehended it. The light of the world. Several lamps on one lampstand. A bit reminiscent of the, the true vine and its many branches. Third one, chapter 26, 1 to, 1 to 37, the tabernacle tent. Well, call that a tent? Hardwood upright, set on silver bases, held together with gold-plated crossbars, supporting one layer of embroidered linen, one layer of goat's hair cloth, one layer of ramskins, and one layer of goatskins. This is an insulated, impenetrable covering, separating man from God. Yet, the veil of the Holy of Holies ripped from top to bottom the moment Jesus died allowing us full and free access to the mercy seat of God. Fourth one, 27, 1 to 8, the bronze altar. Now we're in bronze, not gold or even silver. Sacrifice is something that happens outside the holy place. So perhaps it's, it's more human than divine. But still, verse 8, the altar of our sacrifices has to be made exactly as God wants it, not as we want it. In any case, how will a structure of wood overlaid with bronze survive the heat of this never-ending series of massive barbecues? Does that, in fact, take a daily miracle? Do I think I know better than God what wood and bronze can stand or what flesh and blood can bear? Do I want to offer God gold when he really wants bronze? Fifth one, 27, 9 to 19, the outer court. 
Even though the area of sacrifice is outside the holy place, it's still screened from public view. Our sacrifices to God are between us and him. They're not to be paraded before others. This is a bronze and plain linen enclosure, not one of gold and fancy embroidery. Yet, the screen through which you go in is embroidered with blue, sky, heaven, purple, maybe royalty, scarlet, is that blood? Exactly like the screen of the holy place. So it's as if God wants me to think that my conscious entry into the place of sacrifice is more important than the sacrifice I bring. If true, what does that say about God and me? Next one. 27 verses 20 to 21. Even the oil for the lamp is special and specified. It's oil actually that burns without smoke. It is light without anything to obscure the light. Next one. 28, 1 to 43. The priest's garments. Verses 2 and 40 are for glory and for beauty. Now that we live in the age of the priesthood of all believers, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, what does this glory and beauty say of the way that God wants to present us to the wider world? There's a lot more in this chapter along the same line of reasoning. How am I living before others? And what about the precious stones, verses 9, 10, 21, engraved with the names of the 12 tribes, always born on both the shoulders and on the heart of the high priest whenever he comes before God? What does that say about Jesus, our high priest? See Hebrews. What does that say should be our attitude as priests, a kingdom of priests, when we come into God's presence? Next one, chapter 29, 1 to 37, the consecration rites for the priesthood. They're washed with water. Is that baptism? They're robed. Is that like being clothed with righteousness? Uh, Job 29, 14. They're anointed. Well, Messiah means anointed one, doesn't it? Are we really that closely identified with Christ? Then the priests lay their hands on the heads of various sacrificial animals before they die. What's that about? Some kind of close identification for sure. But what and how and why? And so it goes on. We'll probably have more questions than answers, but God can teach us so much through questions. That's why Jesus asked so many of them. Now, I have more, ranging from I to N, but I think you're looking punch drunk. I can, I can give you the rest later. Let me just uh, read chapter 29, 43 to 46, because this is central as well. God speaking. There... I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will concentrate, consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Now all these meditation topics and the ones we didn't get to, in them we find indications of what it takes to be true Jesus people, a people of heaven come to earth. Each of those simple thoughts and questions could form the basis for a sermon or an essay and certainly for a fruitful meditation.
But I just hope you've seen that even the boring bits of the Bible can speak to us just as clearly as the exciting parts if we ask God to explain them to us. And perhaps in closing, we should return to the two thoughts we began with five chapters ago, that God's plan involves humanity. Indeed, it depends on us, his people. And that at the heart of worship stands forever God's holy law covered with a mercy seat. Why don't we pray together? Why don't you stand and I'll pray? Lord, some of us stand in, um, in need of mercy today. And some of us want to come to your mercy seat for, for grace to help us in time of need. Lord, we thank you that you've, you've determined that at the center of worship there is this throne of grace, this mercy seat that we can come to. That that is the place from which you've decided you want to speak to us. Not from the words of the law. Not from the sacrifices. So would you speak to our hearts right now, Lord, from your mercy seat? Would you speak words of, of love, forgiveness and reconciliation? Would you speak words of recreation and healing? I believe there's some here who've, uh, who've come in ill or injured, who if you just, uh, if you just try the, the bit that wasn't working terribly well, you'll find that it's a bit better than it was. Uh, if that's you, please come forward in a moment when we, uh, when we call you to, to come and be prayed for. I think there are some who, who just want to get in touch with, with, with God more. They just want to make a further connection with him today. Please come forward as well. We'd love to pray for you. And if you uh, are aware that you, you have a, a speaking part, a large part in the, uh, the university mission, the CU mission, uh, we'd love to pray for you. Or if you just want grace from the Holy Spirit, to speak words of life to your friends. Would you come forward as well? And we'd like to pray for you. But whatever your need is, we invite you to, to come and receive this ancient rite, this sacrament of the laying on of hands for a touch of the Holy Spirit on your life. So just come as soon as you're ready. And we're going to sing a worship song now.